0: If you've been following with us through Ephesians, you might realise that we finished last week. And so you think, what are we doing now? Why are we still in Ephesians? Well, we're doing something slightly different today, Um, partly because uh, the teaching programme changed sort of halfway through the series. So we had an extra week. But we thought it'd be nice just to press pause and um, slightly look at the book as a whole and maybe three or four different ideas that are perhaps particular relevance to us as a church at this point. So if you like, we've finished, and now we're just going to kind of bury deep into some different areas. And we've already looked at them slightly, um, but maybe as we dig down, you'll see why we've done that. Um, I'm going to pray that God would help us, and then we'll try and have this overview. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we don't have to pretend. Thank you that you know what we're like. You know who we are. You know the kind of weeks we've had. You know the Burdens that we're carrying, you know the excitement and the joy, you know the anxieties, you know the frustrations, you, you know what we're celebrating, and so we pray as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us in it. Lord, you don't ask us to leave those things at the door, but would your, would your word come alive in the midst of them? Might we be those who leave this place loving you more, trusting you, rejoicing in you? And so, soften our hearts for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go up the A34 um, past Oxford, past the M40, you will know perhaps there's a little town called Bicester. Um, as a church, we uh, planted a church there a few years ago. Um, town church Bicester is doing well, it's thriving. Um, many of you might know it from uh, retail outlets and reductions. If you like those kinds of things the thing you might not know about Bicester is a few years ago it was the at one point the second fastest growing suburb in Europe the amount of building the number of houses going up and still going up it's extraordinary um, you think it's got good train lines it's quite close to London relatively close to Oxford it's just massive and so what happens when buildings go up in Bicester or anywhere in fact all of the greenfield sites around Oxford are similar things happening what do you get you get a muddy field you get bulldozers People in welly boots, people with hard hats. You get lorries on the roads and locals grumbling about that. And, um, but they're fairly near the start of the process, in the middle of this muddy field, rises up this perfect, pristine showroom, this showhouse. Why? It's a glimpse of what's to come. It's somewhere to take interested parties to try and pre-sell the houses before they've even gone up. And, and then you go and you look around and there's wellies off and... Um, kitchens, beautiful carpets, cupboards, jacuzzis, and it's all there. This is what will be. This is what is coming. It's on the outside, there's mud and mayhem. Inside, it's beautiful. It's calm. There's aspirational living, modern. This is what will be. This is what's coming. And that's the image I want you to kind of latch onto this morning through this talk, um, that is something, we've said, that is something of what the local church is meant to be like in this world. Something of a show home. It's a, it's a glimpse of what is to come in the midst of the mayhem. And we said it a number of times. We've said it because Paul says there is an inevitability of all things, of all reality, one day coming under the headship of Christ. Everything united under the headship of Jesus. One day he will come back and that will be seen by all. And Paul says that is a future reality, that is something we can be certain of. And so he says the church is meant to be a glimpse of that reality, a glimpse of that future in the now, a glimpse of a place where Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is head now. And so three aspects of Ephesians I think that have particularly struck me these past few weeks as we've gone through as we think about what it means for us to be something of that show home, something of that glimpse of the future in the midst of the mess now. First point, the local church is to be a place where the gospel of grace is at work. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the start of chapter two, as Tony read for us Um, a few weeks ago. It's this idea that God's Grace in Christ is what fundamentally changes Christians. We are transformed. We are utterly transformed. We are, we are turned from being dead people to being alive people and alive with a purpose people. Paul's diagnosis, I don't know if you spotted it as Tony read, is it was pretty bleak, wasn't it? You were dead, 2 verse 1. It's not particularly PC. It's not particularly pleasant to think about. But he loves us enough to give us the truth. Naturally, he says, "You are separated from God, that that is where you are. And yet come to the end of that paragraph, two verse nine and 10. these lovely words I'll go from verse eight, "For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you see that in verse 8? Our our separation from God, our deadness before him naturally is not solved by, what, trying trying harder, being kinder, working more, doing extra. We, We can't work ourselves out of this separation and death, says Paul. Maybe you're here and you... I don't know, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you, you're, you're wobbly perhaps, or you're just not sure quite where you stand, you're not quite sure what you're even doing here. Please know from this that the way to get right with God again is, is to accept this gift of grace that is held out to you. It is not in doing more or trying to earn it in some way. That just doesn't work. He does the job of rescuing and reconciling us. It's not us as if we're trying to sort of balance the books like an accountant. And the reason I focus on this this morning is that the default setting in our hearts, I take it, is that we want to try and do that, to earn it in some way. To, we want to deserve it. That's just not how it works. I know it's a little way off, but our... Our Father in Heaven is not like a Father Christmas who just gives presents to those who have behaved well enough, who is just kind to those who have been good. That just doesn't work. And yet most of us here this morning presumably would call ourselves believers, and we know this, but so easily we don't know it, do we? We know it on paper, but functionally we don't know it, Again, it's the default setting in our hearts. We want to balance the books. We want to try and work off the debt in some way. It just doesn't work like that. And yet, did you see? Work is not irrelevant. There is a place that work is important. So, did you see? He says, verse nine: Not by work, so that no one can boast. Okay, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by work, we are God's work to do his works. Which means, of course, as Christians, we are meant to live a certain way. Not because we're trying to earn some sort of relationship, but because we're already his. Because he's been kind to us, because he's shown us grace, it's then to do his good works. He's prepared in advance for us to do, not, not to earn a place in the family, but because we're already in the family. And so often people get this wrong, and so often we get this wrong in our hearts. But grace is foundational, and yet we're proud and we want to contribute and we want to make it about us in some way and as if we deserve it, but that's just not the way it works. It's all about him. I came across a story a while ago of a a young woman in South America who had always wanted to leave her family home out in the sticks somewhere, and she wanted to head to the city And her mother urged her not to go because she knew that life in the big city, in reality, was more than likely to end up in, in poverty or prostitution. That was just the way it was. And yet her daughter wouldn't listen. And so one morning, eventually, she just slips out and she goes and she leaves a little note. But there's no forwarding address, no nothing. And she's gone. And the next chapter is her mother waits to hear news, but nothing comes. And as she waited, she saved up all the money that she could save. And after a year, she had enough money to go to the city. So she took all her money, went off to the city. And lots of it went on bus fare. And the rest of it goes on making photocopies of a picture of her daughter. And then she goes from cheap hotel to cheap hotel to cheap hotel all around the place, putting this photo of her daughter on the notice board in each reception of the hotel. Hundreds and hundreds of them. And her money runs out and she heads home again. And the months pass, and she hears nothing. And then one day, in a cheap hotel, which during the day doubled as a brothel, this young woman trudges wearily down the stairs and just notices on the notice board a picture of herself. And she goes over and she takes it down and she turns it over, and on the back it simply says, wherever you are, whatever you've done, come home. And I take it God's grace to us is like that. Driven by his love, and he comes and he gets us. He doesn't wait for us to make the first move, doesn't wait to a point where we can pay him back in some way. It's not motivated by us at all. It just comes entirely from him and his love and his kindness, his people who have walked out on him. We are not those who can earn a relationship with our God. It is simply a gift. And as the mother came for her, so he comes for us. Maybe he's come to seek you out today. Maybe, maybe that's you. Good question for us to ask. At the end of that little section in um, 2 verse 10 is what are some of these good works prepared in advance for us to do? What does that actually mean? What does that look like? Um, I think it works out in all kinds of ways. In the letter, it works at both a corporate level and an individual level, and we're going to focus firstly in on the corporate. Um, so the next point, the local church is a place where the gospel of grace um, unites diverse people. Remember, we're in the show home. All outside, it's muddy, messy mayhem. Inside, we're meant to be a glimpse of what's to come, a glimpse of Jesus as our head and our Lord. And where Paul goes next in chapter 2... To verse 11 onwards, if you've got it in front of you. You see, it comes out in the way that he, he goes on and on through the letter about unity. Do you remember if you've been around at Mordlem Road um, over the last few weeks, we've talked quite a lot about unity because Ephesians, in many ways, is a, is a book about unity. Um, he says to, to Gentile believers and to Jewish believers in the same church, He says, You are one. You are one. You are to love each other. Don't divide. Let me try and give you a bit of a, back up a bit and tell you where that's come from and the kind of point we are at in history when this was written and what was going on there. So the early church forms and it's become clear that Jesus is the Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but he's the Messiah for Israel as well. And at that point you've got all kinds of big questions going on. How do you do church? How do you be a local church when your local church is full of people who were historic enemies? And now they're sat in the same room, and they're more than sat in the same room, they're sat in the same living room, living together as family. There's a love and a kindness that's meant to be there, but they were enemies up until this point. You had this Jewish, Judaistic culture, you've got the Greek, Hellenistic culture. They were at loggerheads, and suddenly... Suddenly they're to be one. They wouldn't have touched each other. But now they're to be family. What would a meal time look like? Just imagine that. Your, your very identity and who you were and who your people were was tied up in the kind of food that you ate. And who you ate that food with. It's more than just getting calories into your body to live for the next day. There's something, something being spoken as you eat together. And so when Paul writes, Ephesians 2.22, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That creates all kinds of theological questions, all kinds of problems, all kinds of practical issues to deal with. Just imagine it. Imagine, if you can, if that were us, keep your eyes open, you have to close your eyes and imagine that way. But just kind of, what would it be like to be in that sort of a context I think there have been two big temptations at least. One temptation would be this idea of sort of superiority. Who gets to call the shots about how you do church? Who gets to make the decisions? So I know we're meant to be one, but look, there are more of us, and we've got louder voices, and maybe we're a bit more persuasive. So this is how we will do church, okay? This is the kind of service we will have. This is what the kind of songs we'll sing. This is when church will start. This is what we will eat. This is how we're going to organise and structure things because, well, there are more of us. And so you'll listen to me, okay? Is there a sort of dominant cultural group in the church? The other one, because I like my alliteration, would be splintering. So you've got superiority or you've got splintering. You've got a group saying we're the dominant group, we get to decide. Or you've got splintering, which is, well, like in our culture where you get to choose and consume in a way that you want, you'll find a church that suits you, maybe with people full of, maybe full of people who are like us or who like the kind of things we like or the same sorts of sermons or the same music or the same vibe. And so we splinter off into all kinds of little churches. But one of the main striking things for this letter for me, Paul doesn't say, you're two churches, just go off and do your thing separately and you'll be much more productive. You'll be much happier. No, he says, you are a single dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is a letter about being unified. This is a letter about not splintering off. This is a letter about sticking with it and loving each other and forgiving each other and showing grace to each other because we live in a world full of clubs and groups, full of people who are pretty similar. But one of the things about church is we ought to be different. We ought to represent something of the area in which God has placed us. Again, if you've been around for a while, you'll know that's something we're thinking through as a church. We have been for a while. We ought to be different. We ought to represent this area better, and it's a very diverse, eclectic, mixed, beautiful area. And so we're still working at getting to know our neighbours better. Indeed, ongoing conversations with different gospel churches full of people who are not like us very much. Those are some of the questions we've been asking, really, for the last five or ten years. Um, I think this unity and diversity thing, though, has a real relevance for us as a church family now. Um, We did talk a couple of weeks ago about what it would mean to to be in the kind of church where there was this submission was rife. You remember that idea? This idea of cultural, this culture of mutual submission where everyone's trying to put everybody else first, where everyone's trying to submit to everybody else rather than our own little soapboxes and our own little agendas and ideas. And... So there's a question to be kind of chewing over. Another question I'm chewing over is where are the potential fault lines within us as a church at the moment? Where are there challenges to our unity? I wonder what you'd say. If Paul is saying we mustn't splinter, if Paul is saying churches ought to be united because that shows something of the gospel that preaches to the world, then where are our potential fault lines? Um, one is clearly the way that we're currently meeting. We've had this extended physical period of isolation. We've not been able to be united in body as a church for a long time. We're still even in separate rooms or we're at home. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. We are, to use our illustration that I always bang on about, we're we're not a restaurant but with a family meal and people are getting stuck in and helping and serving and we're getting back to normal but it's as if we've got different sittings going on or different rooms where there's food being served and we don't really feel like we're all together yet. That makes things hard, doesn't it? That makes family life hard. One thing that challenged me as I was preparing for this this week is maybe have a think about who you've not spoken to for a while. Or maybe even who you've never spoken to. And simply reach out to them so that these these fault lines and these cliques and divisions don't happen. Because little divisions can become big divisions, and big divisions get dangerous. Here's the other one, and it's a bit controversial. I think home groups are brilliant. I said this before, I think home groups are brilliant and yet they could potentially be quite dangerous. They're brilliant because sharing your life with a smaller group of people is a really good thing to do. There can be an honesty, a really good support group, a a care, a depth that we don't get on a Sunday. But they're dangerous because I like my home group. And after church, for example, or through the week, I could just go and chat to them. Because they're easy and I know them. I know what's going on with them. Rather than thinking, huh, as a church we're all together. How can I be reaching out or talking to or getting to know people that I don't know so well? Does that make sense? Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that home groups are bad at all. But potentially they could get a bit cliquey, couldn't they? Or it could get a bit divisive. Or you could feel a bit left out if you're not able to go to a home group. And so you see, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus calls all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories, all kinds of skeletons to be united, to be this glimpse of what's to come when we will be under the Lordship of Christ. In fact, let me just read that glimpse for you. Well, we get the glimpse now. Let me read another little glimpse that we get in Revelation 7, verse 9 to 10. And you see something of where it's all going, John is given this vision of what's to come. And he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, we are meant to be diverse and yet united now in our little churches because in the big final forever church there we will be diverse and united as we stand before him praising him final one so if the gospel of grace works its way out in unity and diversity the gospel of grace also works its way out in our individual lives and so the church ought to be a place where the gospel of grace grows us to be like Jesus Remember, again, we're the show home, a glimpse of what's to come. Let me give you some scenarios of not real people. Fred. Again, I've picked names. If you are visiting and one of your names comes up, I'm so sorry. I've tried to pick names that don't apply to anybody at Maldon Road. Fred. Fred is worried about money. In fact, Fred is always worrying whether he has enough money. Why? Well, because if you dig down, and he's honest, he believes that having a huge pile of savings to sit on is what he needs in case life goes wrong. If Fred loses his job, if he has a huge bill for his house, if the car fails the MOT, if the boiler explodes, whatever, how is he going to solve that problem? Ah, Fred knows. Fred saves and saves and saves and saves. He's got too many savings. Bob. Bob has a tiny fuse. Bob gets really, really angry and he's late for a coffee with someone and he's sat in traffic, the Cowley Road probably, sat in traffic and he thumps the dashboard again in a grump. Why? Well, Because again, if you dig right down and you ask the questions, Bob doesn't actually believe that God is in control or that his purposes for him aren't good. And now he's going to be five minutes late for a coffee with a friend, and so he's really angry. He's catastrophizing once over again. Belinda is a manic overworker. She is always in the office from 7.30 in the morning to 8.30 at night, before anybody else and after anybody else. Why? Well, because deep down, Belinda believes that she needs to prove herself, to justify herself to be in this job, to justify herself to her colleagues, to her boss, even to herself. She doesn't feel she should be there, but she wants to prove that maybe she, maybe she could be there. Cassandra... Cassandra has taken to flirting with a guy at the office because she believes that the attention and the intimacy that she receives with another person whom she knows in her heart of hearts is not actually good for her at all. In fact, he's unhelpful. It is more than what God can offer her. And then there's Percy. He is paralysed by the thought of past sins, stuff that he did back in the day. And he can't let them go... And he thinks that God will make him pay for them. That God's really not pleased with him still. And that forgiveness can't be that easy. That he must in some way need to contribute, must need to pay God back. Grace can't be that simple, can it? And you see the big question is when you dig down, why do you do what you do? What is underneath the action? Indeed, what goes underneath, 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 all the way back to what is that fear, or what is that reason at the heart of it? So that sometimes you live unwisely, so that sometimes you find yourself again in the well-worn paths of sin, that your your muscle memory, your knee-jerk is to do this thing again. See, the danger, if you've been a Christian for a while, is that the answer is... Well, we just kind of drift into tired, midlife, Christian mediocrity. And sin is kind of there. We just expect it. We just learn to coexist with it. The sort of habituation that happens, we sort of lose our sense of smell towards sin. And we don't notice or we don't care so much anymore. And it's just not really a thing. Maybe we shape it. Maybe we shape our sin. we just kind of... Trim it a bit so it looks okay and acceptable but not really dealing with it, not getting to the root of it. It's the back garden that just gets by. You spent a bit of time out there, it looks fine, it looks satisfactory, it's not going to win any prizes but it's all right. You know really you need to tug out the weeds and the brambles and deal with the roots and deal with the issue at hand but that's really hard work and so it is with our lives. We've trimmed stuff back, it looks respectable People on the outside looking in wouldn't really know much different, but but the roots haven't been dealt with. I've not murdered anybody. And then Jesus says, "Well, what about the hatred inside your heart towards that person? You've just trimmed it back. I've not committed adultery with anybody. What about what's going on in your heart with that person? You've just trimmed it back. I don't really covet what they have. I don't need. I don't need a Porsche. Would <laughs> be nice. I don't need a Porsche. I don't need a big house." And Jesus says, but you envy them. You envy how stuff has turned out for them. You, you stalk them on Facebook. You look at their salary, their, their spouse, their success, and you've just trimmed it back. You've not dealt with it. And so Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 particularly are passages about how the gospel changes us. How we're to live in the light of the gospel, not just trimming stuff back so it looks okay and acceptable to everybody else. But actually asking the questions to go deep, to uproot stuff. Paul expects us to be growing in Christ likeness, in holiness, maturing. Maybe these are some of the good works prepared in advance for us to do. Maybe that's some of what he's getting at. Maybe it works at the individual level. And so I take it four, five and six are they are verses, they are chapters for people like us who have grown tired of fighting sin who just like to trim stuff a bit, who have grown disillusioned by a lack of progress. We've got used to the presence of sin in our lives. And Paul's point is this. He says, the truth about your new identity, your new place in the family, that is to totally reshape the way that you live. Not just for a Sunday morning and maybe an hour at home group on a Wednesday, but it's to totally reshape how you live in everything. Remember, we're the show home. So, 4 verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, says Paul. And we say, well, why? And he says, well, we we are members of one body. When you lie, it divides people, and unity really matters, says Paul. Okay? 4 verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Why? Why? Or well, verse 27, don't give the devil a foothold. He loves to divide the church. He, he loves to grow bitter roots. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. Why? Well, they may have something to share with those in need. You're not about self anymore and just take, take, take. You're, you're to give to those who need it. Your whole trajectory has changed from looking in to looking out to your church family. Verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Why? Well, only those words are helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We've said before, words are really powerful. So the kind of words that go on in church life ought to be encouraging, positive, good words. And so the truth about our new identity, our role within our new family, is to shape the way we live in all kinds of little ways. Everyday stuff. And I take it if you're anything like me, the question we keep coming back to is how do we let this gospel shape the people of God? In those moments when your muscle memory says do this, and yet your new identity says no, 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 live like this. When you have a tendency towards self righteous anger, when you've always slipped into it so easily, how do you not go there again? What is the answer? Well, in large part, go back and listen to Matt's sermon from chapter 4. But it's remembering who you are now. It's recalling your new identity in Christ. You've you've put on Christ now. You have a new identity. You are a new person now. Clothe yourself in him. I was chewing over it this week. Imagine the pig farmer who becomes a surgeon. Okay, the pig farmer who becomes a surgeon. And yet this pig farmer keeps turning up to the operating theatre in wellies and covered in pig. It's just stupid, isn't it? No, 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 you're a new person now. The old way has gone now. Put on the new, put on your your scrubs, have a wash first, and then put on your scrubs and your gloves and your mask and your gown and, and wash your hands. You're not a pig farmer anymore, you're a surgeon now. And yet how easily we forget that and we traipse around in life dressed in what we used to wear rather than our new identity. We think we're a pig farmer, but you're a surgeon. Because of the gospel of grace, because of chapter 1, 2, and 3, so the the reality of 4, 5, and 6 has changed lives. New ways of relating and loving and speaking and forgiving. You're a new person now. Have you ever wondered why Paul spends so much time telling Christians, reminding Christians the gospel well, because we remember it, but we don't. We know it, but we don't. It's because we, we never move on from it. It's never not relevant. So you've got Fred. Fred with his money and his security issues. There's nothing wrong with saving, in a sense. They don't come and get me afterwards for that. But, but if it stifles generosity and shows that he doesn't really trust God for the future, then he needs to remember the gospel. His father in heaven has got him and loves him and nothing's going to come around the corner that he doesn't know about. Fred, take your wellies off. Put on your scrubs. Remember who you are now. Bob, anger issues, traffic jam, Cowley Road. It's trusting his father is in charge and working everything out and he's got it. Bob, wellies off, scrubs on. You're a surgeon now. Belinda, overworking, trying to justify herself, her existence, her life. Belinda, you've got another boss. Don't worry about them. You've got a father in heaven who loves you, who is good, who is kind, who is patient. Take your wellies off, put your scrubs on, you're over there now. Cassandra and her flirting, maybe it's a question of value and worth. And knowing how much God loves her, indeed knowing how much her church family loves her, rather than seeking unhelpful affirmation from co-workers. Cassandra, well he's off, scrubs on. Percy. Percy, Jesus has covered your past sins. They are done with. His blood is enough. Your forgiveness is complete. You can trust him. Percy, well he's off. Scrubs on. You've been forgiven. It's okay. And Maldon Road, it will be a lifelong journey of going from, oh, I'm not a I keep acting like a pig farmer. I'm so stupid. I'm so forgetful. I keep forgetting I'm a surgeon now. I keep traipsing into the operating theatre with my wellies on. I'm so stupid. And it will be this lifelong journey of applying and reapplying and remembering and re-remembering And our sin will change as we get older. Different ages and stages will mean different emphases, different problems, different ways of applying the gospel and yet still the same gospel. We must not grow tired of doing that, friends. We must not allow sin to be okay. We must not allow our our sense of smell of sin to disappear. We must keep taking off our wellies and putting our scrubs on because his grace is enough.